that Michael Kane over there? Getting the... Where? No, seriously? Where? Where, where, where? He's, he's putting butter on his popcorn. Who is it? Oh, that's got to be Michael Caine. That's, that's not Michael Caine. That's my neighbour, Godfrey, who looks very, very slightly oh, like Michael Caine if you squint. I was just kidding. Yeah, I was taking <laughs> the piss, as they say over there. Um, I love this game. It's called Mistaken Star. And what I do is I sit down and if I'm with my wife or with some friends at a, a movie or a concert or something like that, I'll find someone in the crowd, then I'll sort of point in their direction and say, hey, isn't that? And then you insert the name of a famous actor, and then your friend says, no, that's not Michael Caine, just like you did. But it ends up being very, very fun. I have a very simple mind, so it's fun for How me. About, okay, here we go. I can, I can play this. Over there, there that, that looks like somebody I've seen in a movie. That, In fact, I think that... That looks a hell of a lot like Stephanie Ray Liedlich. Oh, James, I'm so sorry. You haven't heard. Stephanie Ray Liedlich has passed on to another what? world. No, really? But who you see is none other than Stephen Ray Liedlich, <gasps> who still is and always has been, without question, the greatest single event cross-dressing upright guitarist in the world. <laughs> well, thank you for that introduction. And um, I... Uh, I hope that Stephanie Ray Lelick is still alive and well someplace. And but right now you have just Stephen Ray Lelick. Now this this is pretty exciting because I I have watched um, Andrews's debut film uh, debutant a couple of weeks ago, so I feel Steve like I'm, I I feel like I know you already. It's quite exciting to meet somebody that you've only seen on screen and now suddenly you're speaking to them face to face. Welcome to the Popcorn Counter. Thank you, James. Thank you for inviting me onto the Popcorn Counter podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, the food isn't better. Yeah. We should start with an apology, I think. Do you mind? Do you mind if I start with an apology? Oh, yeah. That's, that's we story, did, a story of our lives, isn't it? We've already recorded an interview with uh, Michael Primer, who was editing on the film, and uh, and we, we apologize to him. So I think we owe Steve an apology as well for <laughs> capturing that little bit of your life and Stephanie's life on film. Um, if we had to destroy any and all traces of it, it wouldn't be very difficult because it's really not that easy to find. And couple of us have it on our computers and it is posted if anyone wants to see it on the uh, two real cinema club uh youtube site i, w- I believe as well james it is, is it's on true? youtube yeah. for anyone and everyone to see yeah. in all eternity now uh, but uh steve you were a very good uh a very good egg for uh playing not one but two roles and sharing your music with everyone so um apologies to you at the outset but we no apologies probably- i i knew that i would not be able to run for political office after making that movie <laughs> <laughs> but this is, Andres, this is the 25th anniversary, is that right? Uh, so, yeah, we're a little bit beyond it. Uh, we've debuted around uh, June 18, June 19 of ni- uh, ni- yeah, well, ooh, 1998. Yes! Woo! So that would be 25 years. 25 years and still getting older. <laughs> and not necessarily any better. But uh, we've had a great time talking to the Prim about it. We've watched it. You've watched it. James has watched it. So we're all up to date on it. And... Uh, yeah, we thought we'd just sort of like bat around a conversation about what the experience was like, and you know how you're doing and what you're up to these days. And uh, I've I've got a, I've got a short list of questions, but I you know, excuse me, feeling starstruck and giggly here. Um, <laughs> the, the first question is uh, when Andres explained what the film was, and he's kind of said, oh, you know, it's a mockumentary, and there's some gags, and it's about this guy's guitarist. What I didn't realize was how much of the film is just it's you playing guitar. Um, and I have never seen someone play guitar quite like that. So you call it, is it vertical guitar? It's upright guitar, what do you call it? Exactly. I call it upright guitar. <clears throat> and, and, how did, and how did you start playing the guitar like that? 
You know, it's it's something that I, I just came up with um, <clears throat> after music school. I actually I actually played trom all played trombone all through music school, so that's my first instrument. <laughs> and after after music school, I was just experimenting with my brother's guitar one day, and I, I tuned it differently. I tuned it in fifths, like a cello, and I was tapping harmonics on the strings. It was really more of a an experiment in physics or in sound. And one thing led to another, and I just started writing songs in that fashion. But I was holding the guitar upright like a cello, you know, be- between my legs, but, but on, a, on, a, on a stool. And I just uh, found myself doing that for hours and hours. And eventually one thing led to another, and I was writing songs like that and using multiple different tunings. Um, so it's a different approach but I, I like to think it's somewhat accessible. For your listening audience out there, uh, the the premise of this film, Debutante, I'll just give a brief rundown, but as a a singer-songwriter in in Boulder, Colorado, one night I dressed in drag and performed for Women's Songwriters Night. Uh And Andres had the foresight to agree to to film this. I, I like that idea because I wanted that documented of me playing in drag. But he also took that one step further and <laughs> had the vision of creating this whole mockumentary, this mock documentary about Stephen Ray Lee, like myself and, and my somewhat truthful, somewhat fictitious life and an alter ego named Stephanie Ray Lee, who performed that night in drag. How did you? How did you guys first meet? Was it through the film? Did you guys know each other before this? Uh, no, we worked together at uh, the Boulder Philharmonic Orchestra. So we were both uh, in an office in a non nonprofit group, um, and you know we were in the business of putting on concerts, orchestral concerts. Uh, but it was a really great community, and we were actually situated in a place called the Dairy Center for the Arts. It was literally a place where they used to like move oh we were talking about transport earlier Ooh, connection to past uh transporting uh, milk i believe the trucks would get in there and somehow it got loaded up this was so that's that's, that's literally dairy meaning like milk from cows not i would I, I for a moment there i thought it was dairy meaning that region of ireland and it was a kind yeah. of you know ethnic Ooh, Irish good thing. guess but no it's really milk it was a building that i, I think <laughs> in earlier times it was the outskirts outskirts of the city so it's where um the trucks would either transfer the milk somehow or just pick it up and then move it on i don't know exactly what happened there but um it was a very interesting building and we got uh, space in there they turned it into like an art center but in that art center was a local 
public access television station. So I started taking uh, classes and getting involved with the TV station, and that meant I could get a camera. So when he said he was going to perform for Where's Richard, which is this women's songwriting circle, I was, and I want to use this expression carefully, champing at the bit. I understand that the the expression is not chomping at the bit, it's champing at the bit. So I was, yeah, I was champing at the bit. I said, God, that's just gold. So I got a camera and I hadn't, I didn't have a ton of experience uh, working the camera at that time. And it definitely shows in the film, but uh, we did manage to, to document it and you know, one thing that came up a lot, I think, when we were talking to Primer, and one thing that I've thought about a lot is that, um, for me, this film, as Jim, James said earlier, it's really about the songs. There's so much music in there, and I really feel like I kind of wrecked it, and that it, just as a concert film or a real documentary probably would have been better, but um, it's just, wisely, I think I did start to structure the, the film around the songs, because that's really the 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 strength of the the material and then you know we just had a lot of fun and I think we went too far in some places but um, when we scripted it out it became this bigger thing um, but I really I still to this day I feel like the best thing is um, the songs and Steve's music and um, it, it at times it gets a little slavish to the the cross dressing uh, premise and I think that interferes a little bit but um, it leads me to one question for you following up Stephen I know you. I know you performed on the trombone originally, but I believe you'd done some scoring for films, or that's what sort of what you're studying. But had you written songs on piano or trombone before you started writing songs on the upright guitar? I, I did, yeah. I I did write music on on piano when I when I was in uh, in college. I went to to Berkeley School in Boston and got a degree in film scoring, but I I never did anything. I never did any film scoring. After college, it all, all my film scoring happened really at the college level. But what it did, what I did learn, what I did take away from that experience is just learning how to create, learning how to write music, um, which is something I, I love to do. And so that's, that, that was really helpful for me to learn it at Berkeley. And so when I started playing guitar, I had that composition mindset and I just started applying that to to the guitar, which for me was a, a new instrument um, at that time. And you definitely use it in a new way, too. I think one thing that always struck me was the, the percussiveness of your playing. And I, you know, I played drums along to you, and I just love that, that, that percussive element that you brought to the guitar, which you don't hear very often. You're, yeah, you're right, Andres. I do, I do consider it to be a, a rhythm guitar. I cannot play a, a lead solo to save my life on guitar, but I'm, I'm a... <laughs> Yeah, I'm a rhythm guitarist. And I hope, are you still playing regularly now? Are you picking up the guitar every day? No, I, I don't play. I, I play so so seldomly now. Uh, I, I certainly don't play out live. I did, um, actually, I did one year ago, I did perform two songs with a co-worker at an employee talent show. Awesome. I work at a hospital in, in Middletown, Connecticut, and I work on the philanthropy team, so part of my job is to run fundraising events. Awesome. So it was my part of my job to coordinate and manage an employee talent show to raise funds for our hospital. And I knew my the VP of my department, she played guitar. So so we decided to do a couple songs together. But we wanted to do crowd pleasers, right? We did Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline and Buddy Holly's <laughs> Not Fade Away. Uh, we didn't do anything, any originals, uh, do anything too out there. So I, I had a lot of fun with that, just playing the guitar again in front of people. But 
I, I don't practice very much. I practice very rarely. Um, just last year, I bought my first electric guitar oh. last, last summer. So I've been exploring that a little bit, really just experimenting with the, the, the gadgets and the sounds that, that you can make with an electric guitar versus an acoustic guitar, what I've been playing for you know, since, since the early 90s. And your gig last year was that upright guitar. Yeah, yeah, I held the guitar upright. Yeah. And my, my coworker, Laura, she, um, she, she's a, a fine guitarist, and she gave, like, the Buddy Holly song, like, the, the edge and the rock that it needed. <laughs> Are you playing the electric in upright fashion as well? Yes, yeah, a little of both, yeah. Wow. And what did you buy for a guitar? You know, I found out this custom-made guitar... And I was in the market for a Ibanez Gem, which is Steve Vai's signature guitar. Yeah. And it has a little, these guitars are very unique. If you've ever seen one, there's a, there's a handle on it. You can just like stick your hand yeah. in the guitar and pick it up. Um, but what I found on Craigslist was a pre-Ibanez Gem, Gem was on sale. And so this was made by Steve Vai's guitar maker on Long Island back in the early 90s. So it's a custom-made guitar that's 30 years old that I, I found for sale. It's one of a kind. It's, it's a beautiful purple guitar. And uh, so I drove three hours to Tannersville, Pennsylvania to, to pick up this guitar last July. But wow. I, I love it. It's, 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 it's fun for me to explore that, uh, explore the electric guitar. It's that. It's that. You know, fam- it reminds me of that famous saying. Um, it's you know, it's not possible to own too many guitars. But if you are only going to buy one electric guitar, then you have to buy a special one, don't you? It's that's yeah. You're going to lavish all your attention on one guitar. Make sure it's the right one. There's a, um, a couple of things I want to pick up from uh, what you guys were saying earlier. Andrews, you were kind of saying about when you scripted the film out, you know, and it started to take on a little bit more of a shape. And I would love to know how much of the dialogue in the film is improvised, because you know, if anybody listening has watched it, it feels very fresh. It doesn't feel scripted. It feels kind of loose and improvised and uh, very authentic. And I'm surprised to hear you mention this notion of a script and how much of what you said was, was pre-prepared and how much of it was just off the cuff. Um, probably somewhere around 50-50. I, okay. I, I, I definitely felt like we needed to build up to the climactic shot, which is ridiculous. It's just uh, Stephen taking a bustier out of his shirt, but it gave us the whole coming out kind of thing. And I was, I think it was, I was inspired by some of these uh, 60 Minutes. It's an American news journalism uh, program where interviews get really intense with famous people and politicians and whatnot. So um, a lot of the interviews, I think, were pretty well scripted. The, I felt like the people who did the best were... Um, 
Nino Polito, who plays Steve's manager, which I think just gives a knockout performance. And he is mostly, I think there are a couple lines that we kind of wanted him to stumble on, but his was mostly improvised. And I think he just nailed it. I think he just wanted to be that, uh, that you know, L.A. <laughs> producer type um, and who's just as interested in himself as he is in his artists. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's great because I'm great. Uh, he has a great talent in him and an incredibly great talent behind him. So I think he was mostly improvised. And uh, another performance I just love is uh, Libby Kirkpatrick, who hosted the night. Mm. And and she's the only, I think, other than there's a little bit where our band, the End Keys, is playing in there. But I think the only other musician that we um, feature on screen is Libby. And she has this wonderful song. Um, where she's, you know, she's, she's, it matches Steve's, it matches the whole theme of uh, debutante, I think, because she says, uh, in my body, I feel dissonant, dissonant and strange, and it's time to rearrange. And it's maybe a 15 or 20 minute, or 20 second spot, and she just nails it. But then in her interviews, a lot of that stuff was just, if there was something happening before or after a show, we, a couple of things we definitely scripted, and some of the interviews with the musicians are more scripted. Um, but we're also just, yeah, occasionally getting some ad lib stuff, the, the, the stuff that happened in that radio, um, that University of Colorado radio interview, which that was just totally Steve kind of mm. vamping with them. And I think that's a great moment. So uh, ironically, the stuff that I prepared for more, I feel, didn't uh, come across as genuine. Um, and, you know, that's one thing I definitely learned about is that especially when you're working with non-actors, it's hard to give them some lines that aren't coming natural to them. So I wish I had um, given people more range, I guess, but I wanted to to get it into some sort of structured story. I felt like there was some stuff that we needed to have. So um, I would say about 50-50. I mean, I definitely had an, a document, an early document that I had just um, put together just so that I had something to work from. And then it was just a matter of finding footage. And it's kind of like a found footage film in many ways because, um, again, the songs deck definitely structure the the entire project. I think what's fascinating is that the whole the whole project the whole film came out of this notion that that steve was going to play this women yeah. only um kind of open mic type night because when you first explained to me what the film was before i saw it i was kind of a little bit worried oh it's 25 years on now are the kind of gender politics of this film going to look a little bit creaky is it going to look more like benny hill rather than something that yeah you know, that will play today but and, and then having seen the film you know it's quite the opposite it's it's kind of sweet and playful isn't it and um there's something you know quite genuine and sort of liberating about like the just the look on Steve's face when he gets to put on a dress and you know what well, actually I'm quite enjoying this and this is cool and this is fun um it kind of comes across as actually quite sweet i think it you know it plays well into a modern um modern audience when you were there on the night Steve i know i'm i'm asking you about stuff that happened 25 years ago um what was it like uh in the real world playing this um where's richard uh, gig yeah you know interestingly enough i i don't remember a lot about like especially like when i was on stage i was just very focused on my guitar playing so on stage i don't remember a lot but before and after i do like just gathering around uh in the audience you know this is, took place at a coffee house penny lane in boulder which is no longer there but it was a popular music venue and coffee house in boulder at the time um but i was very nervous but I was also kind of excited at the same time and I remember even <clears throat> after the show was over 
I went out to a bar with a few friends. I'm sure Andres was there. That we all went out for beers afterwards down the street at a bar, and I, you know, I was I was fully dressed as Stephanie Ray Lee, like you know, with a blonde wig and a black dress and high heels, in this bar with all my makeup on, and you know, nobody said anything to me walking around Boulder like that. One of our one of our friends did overhear a conversation at the bar. There was one guy sitting at the bar who was overheard saying. I am completely confident in my sexuality. You know, that they were having a conversation about this drag queen that was over here, but they weren't, but they wouldn't say, you know, they didn't approach me or say anything to me about it. So, um, I, you know, I, I had a lot of fun with it. It was, um, I think it was kind of a, a challenge for me when I, uh, when, when I first, when I suggested the idea to, to Libby Kirkpatrick, for, for, for me to participate in this female so- songwriter tonight, uh, you know, I asked her, you know, what if, what if I dress in drag? Would you let me play for Where's Richard? And without a beat, she just said, sure, go ahead. <laughs> and she was almost calling my bluff, almost as a dare. And I didn't want to back down from that dare. And I, I talked to her a little for, you know, I talked to her further about it. And I, Talked about the songs that I'd be interested in playing, kind of like the songs that had that had gender issues in it, and so she was she was on board. And when I realized that she was serious about letting me play for that, then it was it was game on. I remember it being a very full house. I mean, Penny Lane is a, it's a coffee shop, um, not a bar, but it was known for, I think a lot of acts had gone through there. I rumored that Nirvana had played there once. It was this place where a lot of groups that were just up and coming and doing their first tours would, would hit this coffee shop and, you know, they rarely got paid or anything like that. Um, so it wasn't, it was more of a prestige thing because it was such an institution and that place was full that night. And, yeah, it didn't seem like anyone had a problem with it. And, you know, thinking on it with today's perspectives, I'm not sure if uh, people would think, oh, he's co-opting this night. And But at the time, everyone just loved it. It was just something different, and it was a great performance. I think the, you know, a lot of the film comes from that one performance, in part because that's the only time uh, Steve Cross dressed and sang. So we had to use a lot of that material. But uh, And your, your song selections that night were pretty good. You had Easy 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 Meat was on the list, and um, Papa Don't Preach was on the list. So you had songs, I think, that that lent themselves towards the the evening as well. It's, it feels almost like capturing a little moment in history. It is a terrific performance. Yeah. Stevie, well, you certainly were. I'm sure you still are. Yeah, a magnetic uh, performer, very watchable. Um, 
it's such a pleasure to watch. There is, God, there is one something that's something uh, we talked about this to Mike a little bit as well about watching debutante that it gave me an extremely powerful nineties nostalgia hit. Mm. This kind of you know, pleasurable wave of of looking back. Um, everybody in the film. Um, looks like they've just stepped out of a Hal Hartley movie. If you've seen any of his films um, in the kind of early 90s, I had a friend who was also called Steve, who had much the same haircut that you did back then. And it just <laughs> kind of it took me straight back. It's amazing. Just like the clothes, the hair, the music, like you know, the bars. You're right. It, it did capture a moment in history, uh, like just scenery around Boulder. Um, and, you know, it, it captured a, a moment in my life and I have to admit that watching this film there's so many cringe worthy moments for me um, <laughs> like the bad jokes the sophomoreish humor um, <laughs> it's it just I just it just makes me groan and I almost wish we, yeah we could do it over again um, I have to say another part that really jumps out for me like here I am looking back at my life 20 years ago, was the amount of alcohol that was involved, right? The first 10 <laughs> minutes of the, of the film talk about all this beer that I'm drinking. You know, I drink beer in the morning and I, you know, I did. I did have a problem with, with alcohol back then. And so here it is, like, um, I'm sitting here with 18 years of sobriety looking back on this film wondering Whoa. what the you know what the heck was i doing back then and it's <laughs> it's almost like a little painful for me to watch yeah and um <clears throat> you know there's there's a lot a lot of scenes there where i you know talk too casually about drinking in the morning um yeah but you know something that's true for me and i think others that drink too much is that practicing alcoholics they they experience this immaturity this arrested development and like stunted emotional growth and I, I i have to say i'm a little bit like that that you know through my 20s and 30s i probably had the mentality <clears throat> of a 17 year old boy but it wasn't until i i found sobriety that i really started acting like a mature adult and so looking back right. on this film as a mature adult the 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 stupid jokes aren't aren't so funny anymore is is my stupid jokes i should say you know and (laughs) and there's there's one real moment of of truth for me like a lot of the stuff that i said in that film i was probably you know hamming it up for the camera a little bit or it was scripted but there's a moment of truth where post gig andres is interviewing me it's a gig in denver Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, not the drag gig, but a gig in Denver. And I say, I'm working off, I'm working, I'm recovering from two hangovers today, you know, one in the morning and one this <laughs> afternoon. Yeah. And that actually happened. Like that, that was truth. And if that wasn't a red flag for me at that time, that my life is so dysfunctional that I'm yeah. going through two hangovers in one day, right? It yeah. didn't occur to me that at that time that that's a problem. And, and, but looking back at it, looking back at it now, you know, I realize that's such a red flag that, um, I'm, I'm happy to look back at this film now and all that drinking with, with 18 years of sobriety. Yes. Here, here. Well said. And congratulations to you. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Cause a lot of people can't do that. What you've just done. So, uh, I was gonna say, I'm sorry for capturing that. Um, 
But at the same time, it lends this authenticity to the project in the sense that if you've ever seen all those behind the music documentaries where where the, the rock stars hit rock bottom and then they, they turn themselves around. And I mean, I usually think of those as being complete nonsense, but it's sort of the same story uh, for you that you were at that time. Uh, sort of unacknowledged as an alcoholic, and then you've you've overcome it, and you've uh, reached eighteen years of sober, and that's just uh, it. Almost it makes it feel like one of those documentaries that I saw about, you know, all the all the bands that were nearly driven apart by debauchery. So uh, it 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 lends debutant this bizarre authenticity of it's a, it's you know like a, a rocker's lifestyle that you're living. And then I mean one of the, one of the first things that they taught us about when because. Um, Andrews and I met, met at film school, and one of the first things they talked about uh, when trying to teach us how to write movies, um, and, and you know, one of the most important lessons of any kind of writing, I think, was to seek out authenticity, because it's absolutely, you know, that, that's the, 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 the foundation of any good story. And, you know, stories which aren't authentic, you know, you're building on shaky foundations. So you know, to see this this kind of confessional authenticity on screen is probably you know, where a great deal of the power of the film comes from. So it's not a coincidence, I think, that you know this is a time when you had your own challenges, but facing those or you know, revealing those on screen is part of what makes the film do, you know, do the magic that it does. Um, these days, it's you know, easier than ever to release uh music you can you know put put an ep out on Bandcamp over a weekend and and uh you know things are universally available have you still got tapes have you still got you know masters and and cds and recordings of yourself from back then i do and you know i haven't done anything with them to put them out on social media um and so that that's something i'd, I'd like to do and and pick that back up again to and just just to put it out there in the universe but that's that's always been in the back of my mind especially in the social media age but i just have not done that yet it's just not where my my life is at right now but it's it's something that i would like to do it's there's something kind of just yes yeah, so unique and kinetic about your style it's a shame if it doesn't get a wider audience because you know having having watched debutante i'm kind of surprised that there aren't you know, um, more guitarists playing in this star because there's something so kind of natural and rhythmic about it. It's, you know, it's just beautiful. I think it's pretty remarkable, actually. Yeah, it, it does feel natural for me to hold a guitar like that, just holding it upright like a cello. It feels more normal to me than the regular way to hold the guitar. So um, it, it works for me. Good evening, Penny Lane. My name is Stephanie. Stephanie Ray, Stephanie Ray Liedlich. And I would like to start this evening out with a little foreplay. Um, speaking of speaking of movies, um just a question for you as a composer. I mean, as someone who studied scoring, how do you listen to music in films? Do you pay more attention to music in, than the average person might? Or are you listening for certain themes that identify characters or anything like that? What, what occurs to you when you're listening to uh, film music? You know, what I had learned uh, in, at music school about film music is that the, the best film music 
is like you you don't even notice it, right? Because yeah. you're just so yeah. drawn into the drama that the mm-hmm. music just creeps in there into your subconsciousness. Yeah. So it's almost like I have to go back and watch a film a second time to, to then then pay attention to the music and just just purely enjoy the film on on its merits to the the first time I see it. But um, but yeah, there's um. And there's music that acts on that level, on a cinematic level. And of course, there's there's music, you know, there's musicals like Broadway musicals for film or or, or rock concerts. But um, but but James, you're a film guy. Tell me about like what what films work for you. Like what what are your favorite films that have a strong musical element to it? Well, I, I was going to say at the weekend we watched. Um we're on a kind of Indiana Jones tip at the moment. Uh, and so I kind of sat down with the children. We watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is not the best Indiana Jones movie, but actually it was, it was better than I remember it. Um, and it was kind of still a lot of good fun. And the children both really enjoyed it. And then, you know, they went off to bed, um, as is their privilege, while Dad stayed up to clean up the kitchen. Um, and so I put my headphones on. And I listened to John Williams' score for um, The Last Crusade. Um, and what really surprised me was kind of what you have just said, which is there's reams and reams of music in the film, which I kind of hadn't noticed. And playing it back, I kind of realised, oh, I sort of recognise this, but I don't think this really went into my brain when I was watching the film. It was just reinforcing what I was watching so clearly. Yeah, that's absolutely when music works well on screen is is when yeah, it's not really drawing attention to itself in the same way that, you know, the, the best editing. Well, I think we, we had a chat about this when we were doing our best film of the year uh, show a few months ago. We were saying, you know, movies where they win an award for editing you should really kind of be embarrassed because the best kind of editing you know, is not noticeable. If, if the editing has drawn attention to itself, it's taking you out of the experience of watching the film. And it's just the same with the music, I think. You may come out of the movie tapping your toes and having enjoyed the music. But I think yeah, when you are there in the moment, the music is just you know, part of that symphony of the arts, which is cinema. So, um, yeah, I uh, commonly come away with an impression of the film, but not the score. Uh, there was, uh, uh, speaking of scores, there's one other film which I will mention, which is um, uh, this evening we watched the trailer for Dune 2, or Dunk, Ooh. as my children call it, not Dune, because that's what the, <laughs> that's what the writing looks like. And, uh, I remember I took my, uh, took my daughter to go and see that, the first Dune film, not the David Lynch one, but the, the most recent one. Uh, at the cinema uh, it's be a couple of years ago now and the soundtrack for that is just kind of as far as i can record it's just very very loud distorted noises played at full volume that's yeah. kind of the whole soundtrack and um with that kind of soundtrack you can you can feel that it's you know it's supposed to have this sort of um uh this very fundamental sort of barbaric effect through the sheer force of of volume um but I'm not sure it really succeeds as a, a soundtrack outside of being used as a, you know, as, as a sort of a backdrop to some some visuals. So, yeah, there are soundtracks which get praised and draw attention to, which I think are you know, more about effect than they are about music. But mm, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a particularly accomplished musician, so I don't think I can point the finger. Are you, Steve, are you, are you available to compose soundtracks? Are you interested in getting back into Ooh. that? Wow, I am so rusty and so so out of practice with that. 
I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> you'll, you'll get a call from my agent. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that, you know, one of the best uh, uses of music and film is actually some certain concert films that I think really are great because you get to see, um, you know, entire performances or uh, in some cases recording sessions and things like that. Uh, the Pink Floyd film that they did at the theater at Pompeii, you know, was just, it mesmerized me as a kid. I was just watching this thing that Brandy Carlisle did at someone's house in Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles, which was amazing. And um, so I think maybe that's the the ideal way to, to uh, see music in film is when it's really that intentional. I mean, I agree with you both. It's like if it's done really well for a, for a narrative film, it doesn't it doesn't distract your attention. But sometimes it's nice to just draw an attention to an artist and really explore their music in a concert film or some sort of do- a real documentary, I guess. Yeah, my favorite concert movie is um, Purple Rain. You know, I'm oh sure yeah, we, we did talk about concert movies, and I can't remember whether I mentioned it or not because it's you know it's kind of a concert movie, but yeah. it's kind of not. But you know, all the most exciting bits of the film are just you know Prince and the Revolution playing, and then the the acting bits are sandwiched in between for you to catch your breath between performances. Yeah. He actually has a, a more strictly concert film that I forget the title, but I saw it a few years ago. It's not very good. It's not nearly as good as Purple Rain. It's it's, it's, kind of, it's the tour for Sign of the Times, isn't it? Yeah, I Sign of the Times, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know, is it, what, is it called One Night in Paris? or mm, I think it's called Sign of the Times. Maybe I it's might... just called Sign of the Times, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I remember kind of seeing that as well and being very disappointed. And I think clearly the idea was that someone had realised that the most exciting bits of Purple Rain were the live concert bits. Let's just yeah. do all live concert bits. But it just doesn't really work as well. Yeah, it is, yep. Yeah. Uh, Sign of the Times, yep. Exactly. With a peace sign in there, too. Remember, the prince started using some symbols. Because <laughs> um, the artist has grown beyond the alphabet, yes. Caught great film, great songs on on film, like things like Extortion. Always, make, always that song always makes me happy. Gay truck driver, drag queen, cowgirl. Some of your hits are there, and I'm glad we've got them on uh, video for posterity. Yeah, I was happy to uh, listen to those again. And um, what I really enjoyed most, one of the things I really enjoyed watching that movie again was the N Keys, and this was the the Eastern yeah. European polka band that Andres and I played in. And so there's a little clip in there, and that's Andres playing percussion uh, with like some black and white footage with some Eastern European music, and yeah. Lima Geigelis is playing violin, and Dwayne Webster on bass. And I was really happy to hear that music again. That was fun. That's definitely one of my uh, favorite moments too. Just a quick moment, and that's my only time on screen. Um, it's a good thing that we put you on screen a lot more than. Than me, but uh, is there is there one song that you really love seeing? Other than that, one of your own songs that you liked the performance of and really like to see on on screen? Yeah, it's a song called River Road, and a, a friend of mine in Connecticut who I lost touch with, she she yeah. wrote the lyrics for that, and to me that song's aged really well. I was happy That's to right. hear that because I I kind of forgot about it because I didn't write it, so I kind of forgot about it. But then hearing it again, I thought, wow, that's a really <clears throat> that's a really nice song, and. I think, um, you know, I think where I'm at in my life right now, I'd, I'd want to write songs that, yeah, I don't know, more more from the heart yep. and try to be a little more inspirational, right? 
uh, make, make people feel good rather than being cynical or snarky, which I, I think I was maybe trying to be a little bit too cynical or snarky back in the day. Um, so in my old age comes wisdom and I do want to approach songwriting again and definitely do it from a, a different direction. I mean, I think the other thing is, is that you know the world of 2023 is kind of different to the world of 1998. I mean, we've talked about this a bit before on the podcast and this kind of millennial ennui that seeped into all media in like the sort of mid to late 90s. There's something about 90s cinema and then the way that it changed, um, you know, and the way that, uh, this is my kind of pet theory about the way that the, one of the ways that the world changed in, in 9-11. Um, so, I, so I think, you know, the world we live in now maybe kind of needs different songs to the world of 1998. Um, I was just going to say, I, I agree. I love that scene very much because um, that felt like a really natural moment. We were just on this radio show with these, they were kids to us. They were probably, you know, like 20-year-olds having their, their college radio show. Uh, I don't think they knew what they had in coming with Steve sitting down and doing live radio. But um, I love some of the camera work in there, too. It's really simple and basic, but it just kind of follows the story and shows you kind of shows you how Steve plays his guitar. Because I followed the the lead from the amplifier, and the wire, and then down to the guitar. And Steve used to prop up the guitar on top of a guitar case. It's just the strangest little setup. So then you could see him hitting first before you actually, uh, we penned up and, and showed him singing as well. So it's, it's one of my favorite moments, too. And, it's, and again, I think it's because it's everything together. It's a live performance. Um, the, it's got non-actors in there just being themselves. It's got a it's, it's got a song, and it's just one of my favorite moments as well. So I'm glad you you uh, hit on that one. Also, um, I should just say thank you to Steve right now because I our listeners don't know this, um, and I'll thank the listeners too. But thanks, Steve, for coming and remembering stuff and sharing your memories. Um, thanks for the listeners. Uh, some of you may have seen Debutant. You can see it at uh, our YouTube channel if you'd like. And thanks for to James for sitting through this again, and both of you for watching the film. Um, Steve, uh, pleasure to meet you. Uh, please, please get back on the guitar. Because uh, yeah, well, world needs more more songs. World needs more upright guitar. God damn! I think you're encouraging me. Yeah, thank you. Maybe that's the encouragement I needed to uh, to get get onto Spotify. But thank you, James and Andres, for inviting me onto the Popcorn Corner. It's given me a a really nice chance to look back at this film that Andres and I did 25 years ago. It was a lot of fun to make. I know that, and. <clears throat> It's uh, giving me kind of a different perspective to look back on it. I'll be putting you on my playlist. Thank you so much for coming.
take me to the river.